0: Hello and welcome to another episode of uh, The Album Years with myself and my co-host Tim Boness. Hello. And uh, today we're going to be talking about 1969. Now, the last two episodes, as you probably know, if you've been following this podcast, were 1979 and 1989. So now 1969. Can you see what we've done there? This is clever. It's very clever. So we thought it'd be interesting to see, you know, we've obviously done the, the dawn of a new decade or the end of the previous decade two previous episodes. So we thought it'd be interesting to go back and and see, you know, how that was affecting music at the end of the 60s, which some would argue was the most uh, important era of all for pop music in the sense it was the era, it was the decade when pop music really came of age, wasn't it? You started the 60s with, you know, pop music very much being one thing, a sort of more on the kind of trivial, middle of the road, end of the spectrum, and you end up, and we're kind of really into the realms of art, rock, and serious pretensions for, for what was popular music. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do, Tim, I believe, what you know, a, a, a regular part of the show, I think, from now on is going to have to be the complaints and errata Section, Indeed, where, yeah. we deal with, where we deal with your comments about what we've made. Schoolboy errors, schoolboy yep. errors, errors we've made, which we, you know, we're, we're quite happy to come clean when we've made genuine schoolboy errors. And uh, also some complaints. So, Tim, you, you are kind of like in charge of the, uh, the complaints desk here, the letters desk here. So
1: I, I'm going to start with one, that really. It's, it's, it's actually for me that I kind of found it slightly annoying where somebody had actually written, I love the album years, which I can take that. That yeah. comment so far I so like. good. Yep. I love the ideas, and one of the best things about it is when Professor Wilson, Professor Wilson, takes apart his lowly student Tim Bonus on the errors. <laughs> no way! <laughs> and, oh, that's beautiful. And I'm thinking, that's beautiful. You know, yeah. Has this person actually heard the show? Because obviously, we've equally been responsible for errors, and I'm afraid to say this person is going to be saying. I love the album years, especially when Professor Bonus points out his lowly student Wilson's many, many, many
0: errors. Well, that was too many many's there. Do you three think so? three <laughs> many's I, many errors. I'll, you know, I'll settle for many. Listen, I, I make lots of school errors. In fact, I made one uh, last in the last podcast where I where I said that. Uh, um, I think Omar Hakim played on Seeds of Love. In fact, it was Manu Katché, of course. Yeah, as yeah, anyone, yeah. as <laughs> anyone knows, uh, I did make that mistake, and I'll, I will come clean. That was a terrible, terrible schoolboy error. It would it would take some beating to beat your schoolboy error of describing Jethro Tull's album Benefits, though the <laughs> one that benefits. the one that al- the one that almost sank the whole podcast. You know, <laughs> it, uh, yeah. but but you know, no, I, I love that, and you know what? And the, the funny thing about that comment is it wasn't even me that wrote it. <laughs> uh, I, wish, I wish I'd wish i thought of it and done it myself. But anyway, uh, w- what else have we got?
1: Um, so we had that one. Also, that we had mentioned uh, prefab Sprout, that we were going to discuss protest songs, which, of course, we did. We had a very good discussion about it. But you edited it out before even I could edit it out, I'm afraid. Yeah,
0: so I, I should point out at this point that basically every time myself and Tim record on these podcasts, we go on for fucking hours, right? And inevitably... Uh, to save the planet from being bored to tears by us rattling on for hours and hours. Some of it has to go. And uh, I made the executive decision to excise... Prefab Sprout out of last pod out of last podcast, which unfortunately generated a continuity error. Uh, we can't afford to uh, employ a continuity person to check for <laughs> things like that. So things like that will occasionally pop up. I think the bottom line is we will talk about Prefab Sprout, one of Tim and my myself's favourite bands of all time. But I think ultimately, I felt like the protest songs discussion. Uh, I don't think either of us would say that that's their best moment. Uh, So I thought, okay, you know what? We're going to talk about that ban in more depth on another episode, no doubt. So this time around, they can go. Listen, I'm looking forward to the time when we get to episode 25 of the podcast and the entire podcast is just taken up with complaints. So 1969, the, the one thing, when I was compiling, compiling the list for this year, the one thing that occurred to me is how the era of psychedelia, the kind of summer of love, had kind of affected everything. Mm-hmm. Um, you really hear the influence of psychedelic music or that kind of approach to music um, affecting everything from mainstream pop to folk music to country music to soul and funk to jazz. I mean, jazz is going through an incredible... Mm. Uh, you know, kind of period of transition, isn't it? 1969 is very much a watershed year uh, for jazz music. And it's true, I think, of almost every style of music that we're going to talk about, the influence of
1: psychedelia. Well, certainly all of the genres seem to be sort of expanding and this even, you know, goes into the realms of country. You know, you've got people like Bobby Gentry who a year earlier... Uh, made the Delta Suite, which is an amazing concept album. And Johnny Cash was making lots of concept albums during this period. So he'd have done The Holy Land uh, this year, I think, 69, which is a kind of biblical concept album. And what's interesting is that a lot of seemingly M.O.R. or country or folk artists are really expanding their repertoire. And, you know, as we'll find, this kind of British blues boomers of the mid-60s are really coming out and, and expressing things that you just couldn't have believed. And as I think you pointed out at the beginning, what's exciting about 69 is you think about 1960 and there were some great albums in the classical field and the jazz field, but you know, pop and rock wasn't necessarily in an interesting place. And you think of the Beatles kind of emerging 62 and then 63 in a big way. By 69, Abbey Road would have been an unimaginable album in 1960, the growth of that band. And um, I think that's kind of interesting. It's not only the growth of the band, it's the growth of the arts during that era. There really does seem, as you said, perhaps it is this psychedelic mind and sensory expansion, but something was happening.
0: So maybe, maybe you, you kind of mentioned specifically the country thing. Maybe we should start with country, country music. What's interesting here is there are, uh, there are country artists that I guess have been inspired by what's going on in, in you know, rock and roll, but there's also things going in the other direction too. So you have artists like Bob Dylan, um making nashville skyline mm-hmm. which is kind of his first country record uh, i hope that's not a schoolboy era i think it was his first sort of nod to to you know obvious, very obvious nod to country music an album of course that has johnny cash on it as a as a guest yeah. um and then and then you have a band like the birds who made two albums this year dr sure. birds and mr hyde and, and ballad of easy rider both great records actually their big big sort of breakthrough into country was the previous year with with um Sweetheart of the Rodeo but it's Mm. interesting that there are these bands that are coming more from the sort of rock and folk tradition moving towards country Um, and obviously you have the band as well from Canada who kind of make their definitive album self-titled album this year there's almost a yearning isn't there it seems to be getting back to your roots particularly in America a yearning to be getting back to some kind of uh, notion of roots yeah Um,
1: yeah what you point out is interesting because it wasn't only the Birds or Dylan um you had bands like Jefferson Airplane and Grateful Dead who were in some ways kind of retreating from that uh, psychedelic experimentation of the 66, 67, 68 period. And of course, Grateful Dead are going to go on to do things like American Beauty and so on, which were Mm. much more stripped down and much more rootsy. And um, it is always bands trying to find their roots. Um, Although I kind of find it slightly more interesting slightly later you know i suppose in the early 70s um an album like gene clark who obviously was in in the birds um where he produces the kind of cosmic country and and poco similarly do cosmic country where they're kind of fusing conceptualism and psychedelia with this very rootsy earthy quality
0: there's definitely you know the, the the birth of of you know Psychedelic country music here. You got album uh, by by like uh, UFO by Jim Sullivan. Towns Van Zant made a couple of records this yes, year. Yes, yeah. But just f- flipping over to the other side, you know, uh, if if you like the the kind of flip side of country, which is kind of folk music, is also a very very interesting year for for folk. What people would come to know as folk rock, um, and I suppose preeminent among those would be Fairport Convention, who released not one, mm. not two, but three albums. This year. And some might say their three greatest albums were all released within the year of 1969. So right at the beginning of the year, you've got uh, what we did on our holidays. Then halfway through the year, you have un bricking And then towards the end of the year, you have what I think for many people would be the preeminent folk rock masterpiece, Legion Leaf. So maybe we should talk a little bit about Fairport Convention. They're an interesting band, aren't they? Because they kind of started off being sort of Bob Dylan idolaters. Yeah. And they discovered the sort of the great folk, the British folk songbook. Um, and obviously recruited Sandy Denny, one of the greatest female singers of all time, I think I can safely say, yeah, without yeah. fear of contradiction, um, and made this trio of, of just stunning albums um, that virtually invented the whole notion, I think, uh, certainly from a British perspective anyway, invented the whole notion of, of folk rock, at least the idea of taking traditional folk songs and, and rocking them up.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first Fairport album from '68 is is pretty good actually, but you know, Judy Dyble has a has a you know has a really charming voice, and you can see that they kind of come from more of a West Coast American and Dylan direction. Though there are a few you know very beautiful ballads on that album, but yes, Sandy Denny is one of the most extraordinary vocalists of all time, and it's just a beautiful deathless sound. You know, for me, the two female vocalists I love during this period are Sandy Denny and Bobby Gentry, really. And I think that with um, these albums, she really comes into her own. Obviously, who knows where the time goes and so on, but Autopsy, you know, one of my all time favorite tracks um, from Unhealth Breaking. And what's interesting about this band is, as you say, they're kind of on the edge of discovering the traditions of English folk bringing it into almost a kind of a hard rock late 60s early 70s sound and improvisational quality you know because there's something in the looseness of this band that kind of reminds me of Zeppelin or Free in some ways I don't know why but I'm always kind of because it's such a a brilliant flexible band with such a great sound and I was kind of thinking as well that 69 one of the things that comes up for me is guitar tone that there are people like Peter Green, Robert Fripp, Frank Zappa, John McLaughlin, Jimmy Page, and then Richard Thompson, who have the most amazingly pure and distinctive guitar tones.
0: Yes, and in fact, lest we forget that Led Zeppelin also uh, made their first two albums uh, uh, this year, and Jimmy Page very, very influenced also. By the tradition of of British folk music, mm. um, and of course, uh, famously ended up with them recruiting Sandy Denny to duet with Robert Plant on um, on the Battle of Evermore on on the fourth album. But so there's a lot of interesting things going on in the world of folk music. Obviously, this year also we have Pentangle's Basket of Light. Uh, Pearls before swines, these things too. Incredible String Band's Changing Horses, probably their weakest album actually during this period, but but still a very interesting band. Mm. And um, but the another another album I think is worth dwelling on, perhaps from from this era, from this year that that kind of falls loosely into the folk tradition is the is the third Tyrannosaurus Rex album, Unicorn. Now I'm a massive fan of Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's I think they have something in common with Incredible String Band in the sense that they're almost. It's almost outsider music before the notion of outsider music is yeah, born yeah. in the sense these are these are people who can't really play with any great deal of proficiency, but they're creating something wonderfully naive and wonderfully childish and wonderfully magical, despite themselves almost. I mean, Mark Bonin's lyrics at this time is just gobbledygook of lines mm. and words he's kind of cribbed from Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and put together in these very beautiful, but completely meaningful, meaningless, I should say, or at least it seems to me, uh, playing the this kind of uh, very cheap acoustic guitar with a guy sitting next to him on bongos. But there's something so innocently magical and yeah. otherworldly about the sound of Tyrannosaurus Rex, isn't there?
1: I absolutely agree. I think, you know, there's a kind of inspired amateurism about it. And I guess that it's Boland's uniqueness. He has a great way with language, even if I don't understand what he's saying. And he has such a distinctive and charming voice as well. And um, I really like Unicorn. I mean, my favourite T-Rex album is probably um, the transitional album, which was T-Rex, I think, itself, isn't it? The one from 1970? Yeah, yeah. And that is where you actually have the freedom of Tyrannosaurus Rex and the beginnings of that kind of rock power that you had on Electric Warrior. And I kind of love that album because it's the best of both worlds for me. But but yeah, Unicorn is... It's a gorgeous album. They all kind of blend into one to an extent, the Tyrannosaurus Rex albums for me, a bit like Incredible String Band, but a bit like that. I love them all. You know, when it's on, I'm completely transported. And it just seems to have, as you say, a kind of an innocence that's very specific to that era, really. Maybe we should I think
0: we should sort of cut to the nub now and let's talk about, you know, we talk about how psychedelic music is kind of influencing everything with country music and folk music. Let's kind of talk about, I think, what the natural, I think, you know, you could argue the most natural kind of successor to psychedelic music. And we've kind of touched on this before in previous episodes, is this notion of what progressive rock is going to become. So I've got this category here, which I call proto-progressive rock, Mm -hmm. because a lot of these bands weren't really making what, what you would consider to be, you know, your stereotypical progressive rock, if there is such a thing. During 1969. Sure, But there's a lot of bands like Pink Floyd, Caravan, Family, Yes, Jethro Tull, Procol Haram, Van de Graaff Generator, all making records this year. Unless um, we forget right at the end of the year, what many people consider to be the first, perhaps the archetype of all progressive rock, King Crimson's first album in the court of the Crimson King is released. Now, I don't want to talk about this album because I think we've, a lot of people have talked about this album a lot and it's kind of pseudo canon, kind of, isn't it really? But let's maybe talk about some of these other entries that these bands are making. And I think it's fair to say some of these bands are still finding their way yes it's really they're releasing their yeah. first album so it's a lovely record but it still has influences from west coast music they're covering things like uh buffalo springfield and the birds uh, it has a kind of naivety a char- yeah but a uh, beatles but it has a sort of naive charm to it doesn't it i mean john Anderson's voice is as good as it ever will be
1: i think know? it's a lovely album actually you know the tracks like sweetness that i would put on a, a best of yes compilation for me Survival, and think- oh, yeah. survival glorious piece And I think that the interesting thing about Yes during this period is that they do have a distinctive sound. You know, they've got an amazing bass player in Chris Squire and John Anderson. You know, so to have kind of Anderson, Bruford and Squire in your band alone, you've got this sound. And and I always think Peter Banks is incredibly underrated. I think his playing on this album is superb. And one of my kind of theories with, with Yes, they kind of fit into my Academy of the Underrated in that if Yes had only made this album, I still think we'd be talking about it as this amazing British experimental West Coast proto-progressive album.
0: Well, and it's interesting, there are a few bands this year that, that kind of did do what you're talking about. They really only made one or two albums and then they kind of broke up. And I wonder if some of these other bands, like bands like High Tide and East of Eden, who both made great records this mm. year. I mean, High Tide's album, Sea Shanties, I mean, that's a really dark nihilistic record. I mean, very much kind of, you know, preempts in a way what Van der and King Crimson are going to do later uh, with that album. I mean, the first two tracks, Feudalist's Lament and <laughs> Death... What well, I forget what the second one's called, Death on Two Legs or something. Oh, that's a Queen title. Mm-hmm. It's something like Death Warmed Up. Death Warmed Up is the second... I mean, this is really dark stuff. But they're a band that broke up almost immediately. And you wonder if some of these bands, as you say you know, might have gone on to become the yeses or the Pink Floyds had they kind of persevered. But also other bands this year, Man, Two Ounces of Plastic with a Hole in the Middle, great title, great album. uh, Families Entertainment, The Nice, their self-titled album. So some really interesting proto-progressive rock albums. And my favourite band Pink Floyd made two of my favourite albums this year that they ever made, Moore and Amagama. And I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Amagama. Sometimes I would say Amagama is my favourite Floyd record. I'm a particularly a fan of the second record, which I know some Floyd fans can't abide. I think it's just an incredible uh, piece of work. A band, you know, really using the studio in a in a way so creative. I when I was twelve years old and I discovered this album, it blew my mind open. And you know, and we t- interesting. We talked about how the White Album, you know, um, how Revolution Nine was an example of introducing people that would never normally be introduced to the idea of music concrete uh, to that whole world of music concrete through Revolution Nine. I think maybe for me a similar thing happened when I heard. Amagama, I mean, that introduced me to the whole world of sort of tape manipulation, uh, studio processing, serious experimental avant-garde music. Um, It was a real gateway for me.
1: Well, I think Floyd naturally kind of combined um, accessibility with experiment. And certainly on on Amagama and more, there are some of my favourite Floyd tracks. I mean, you know, um, I've always loved Grandchester Meadows. Uh, Cirrus Minor, I just think is magical yep. piece and you're right that you know they managed to make these kind of timeless singer songwriter pieces then experiment with tape loops and avant-garde electronic classical and also they're a damn good psychedelic rock band as the live uh, sides of of totally suggest totally. My, my,
0: i think the definitive version of set the controls for the art of the sun uh, and careful with that, actually, Eugene, wonderful version. So it's just a, a perfect a perfect kind of summation of what they were doing. Well, it's
1: of one time. of my favourite periods. I think that whole thing, that you know, I, I do like the, the Floyd debut Piper, It Gets a Dawn, but actually Sourceful of Secrets through to Atom Heart Mother, where the band seemingly a transitional.
0: My favourite period, yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. playing with
1: so many possibilities. They're an utterly brilliant band. You know, personally, I might prefer, you know, the whole Dark Side of the Moon to the Wall, well, Final Cut possibly for me is a beautiful run of perfectly crafted albums, but this period is so exciting. And so, as you said, you know, when you were 12, I think I was about probably a similar age when I discovered Pink Floyd, although was Wish You Were Here was my entry point. But yeah, it was incredibly revealing of, of so many alternative worlds that I've not discovered. <laughs>
0: I think kind of the, the flip side of, of proto-progressive rock is is what I've called the sort of Kraut rock, the birth of Kraut rock and experimental rock as well this year. Uh, although experimental rock's kind of been happening for a while now through through artists like Zappa, obviously. But but there's definitely, again, a bit of a watershed moment this year because we have um, a couple of Zappa's masterpieces, Uncle Meat's. And Hot Rats. And again, you know, Uncle is another album, much like the second record of Amagama, where he's combining the idea of the studio as a, as a musical tool in itself yeah. with incredible musicianship, incredible, incredible chops as a composer, um, the tape manipulation, the the use of very speed, backwards masking, all of those things going on in that record. And then Hot Rats, which again is an album that could easily have popped up in the jazz rock category here. Uh, because it's essentially a jazz rock album, but you know experimental rock's been around for a few years by virtue of people like Zappa. But here we also have now uh, artists like uh, Can coming on the scene with Monster Movie. Uh, another artist from another band from Germany, Amon Düül 2, making their first album, Phallus Die. Um, we have a very very eccentric British album um, by a band called White Noise called an Electric Storm uh, which is essentially members of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop uh, helmed by a guy called David Voorhast this this album is a really strange album this is a this has got that kind of BBC Radiophonic Workshop sort of sensibility the sort of very kind of cerebral academic approach to cutting up tapes and creating sounds from nothing but I think the album that we really should talk about and dwell on the most from this year because it's just completely out there on its own it's album i've talked about many many times over the years in interviews is an album that still doesn't seem to obey any rules at all or make any sense at all on a superficial level which is trout mask replica <laughs> by captain Beefheart. an album you cannot not have an opinion on you either love it or you hate it now i have to say i've been through both phases the first time i heard it i hated it i didn't understand it it sounded like people messing about and I gr- I gradually began to realise through 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 my own curiosity of going back and kind of trying to decode what was going on in the music. I realised it's genius. Are you a fan of this album, Tim Troutmaster
1: Replica? It's original. It's poetic. It's uh, controversial. It's disturbing. It's funny. It's brilliant. Um, I can't say it's something I necessarily listen to for pleasure. Although you know there are some beefheart things that I do listen to for pleasure. I, I kind of liked when Beefheart collided with the new wave, some of his, um, you know, Dock at the Radar Station, his sort of late 70s, early 80s albums, Ice Cream for Crow, um, I kind of connected with more than I did uh, Trap Mask. I think the thing about Trap, Trap Mask Replica is it's completely
0: hardcore. It's completely uncut. Um, so I, I guess that's in a way why I'm saying it's very hard to feel ambivalent about it, although mm. you're, you're kind of suggesting to me you are uh, you are kind of slightly ambivalent about it. I think it's almost Im- uh, impossible to be ambivalent about this album. It's so bizarre. It's so unwieldy. It's so strange. It's so alien to the, to the ears of anyone that's been brought up on conventional pop music or sure. conventional pentatonic blues music. It's such... Uh, a shock to the system to hear Troutmaster Replica. I mean, yes, you can hear little bits of echoes of R&B, you know, Howling Wolf and people like that in, in Beef Hearts delivery. But musically speaking, there seems to be no precedent at all for what he's doing in terms of the complexity uh, of the music. Uh, just with two guitars, uh, drums and bass, um, mm. and something that's never really been replicated uh
1: well it's also it's so difficult to replicate this you know this really uh, is um i mean i think tom waits obviously accessed some of the spirit of yes from the early 80s onwards yeah but yeah i mean i don't think anyone has approached this because i think it's a weird combination of chaos and intention i think and Mm. king crimson have this but king crimson have it to the nth degree, in some ways they feel absolutely in control of the chaos and the intention. One of the things that I kind of find fascinating about this is that, I think we said this before, that there are very, very few people within any kind of art or, or genre that I'd call genius. And whatever I feel about the music, whether I love it, like it, dislike it, Zappa and Beefheart are two people that I would call genius. Um, Mm. You know, people like Bowie, people like Waters, who I think have produced genius work, I think a lot of their success is due to great ideas and hard work, whereas with Beefheart and Zappa, they just seem to be naturally extraordinary characters and extraordinary talents.
0: Well, I think what's also, uh, also just to sort of slightly elaborate on what you said there, I think also people like Bowie and Waters were were very good at uh, using the people around them to make themselves look better. You know, and I I don't say that in a, a, you know, I don't mean that in a derogatory way whatsoever. That is part of the genius of, of Bowie and Waters is that, you know... Bowie was very good at always being the same, but changing the people around him to make it appear that he had changed and he had developed and he had kind of reinvented himself. And and that's a simplification because I think he did, obviously, obviously did reinvent himself, particularly the way he looked and the way he sang. He did change. But I think a lot of it was also about the people he chose to collaborate with. Um, And you can't really say – well, maybe you can say that about Zappa and Beefheart. They did change their collaborators, but I think their personalities were so strong that it almost didn't matter, or at least it didn't matter as much who they were working with.
1: Well, you also – yeah, exactly. You feel that they could have done it on their own. Um, Maybe
0: that's – this is a good point, Tim, because, you know, you've kind of – I mean, I think you could quite – quite easily describe Zappa and uh, and Beefheart as being in the same category that I was going to come on to now which is which a category I've I've called eccentrics uh, which is kind of people that don't really fit in to any of the other things but they're just making this wonderfully kind of eccentric create eccentric creative music I'd actually put Bowie in here. Bowie's Space Oddity came out this year. I think we've we've talked about Bowie enough already. So other eccentrics we've got this year: Bonzo Dog Band made two albums this year. Tab Poles and Canesham. I mean, they're really kind of you know very eccentric, out on their own. It's a combining sort of music hall comedy with progressive rock and psychedelic rock, and so sort it's of kind of a mixture of everything. Scott Walker made three and four this year. I mean, two pinnacles mm. in in uh, in his catalogue. Also, other some other eccentrics this year, or not necessarily eccentrics, but outsiders: uh, Love, Arthur for sale and out there this year yeah. two, two good albums. Uh, Donovan's Barabajagal, not one of his best but still some lovely pieces. Uh, Jack Bruce's Songs for a Taylor which is a great record. That is a really lovely
1: album I think.
0: Definitely recommend Songs for a Taylor. Steve Miller, two albums, Brave New World and Your Saving Grace uh, Mott the Hoopled, self-titled album but the two albums I want to focus on Tim the two, the two eccentrics that I want to focus on are Kevin Ayers and Harry Nilsson Kevin Ayers album this year, Joy of a Toy which, which was his debut album I think this is just one of, along for me, along with Piper at the Gates of Dawn, this is one of the definitive kind of psychedelic progressive pop records just wonderful songwriting uh, the arrangements are lovely there's that kind of again it's something in co- he has in common with Sid Barrett that kind of interest in uh, people like Edward Lear almost childlike um, surrealism like Alice in Wonderland surrealism going on in a lot of the lyrics so you have song titles like Stop This Train Again Doing It or Eleanor's Cake That Ate Her it's mm-hmm. almost stuff that's come it's come from the nightmare aspect of the of uh, you know of the nursery
1: yeah I've always loved this album I I think um, what I like about it, again, is this kind of freewheeling combination of experimental ideas and plainly lovely melodies. And as you've pointed out, the arrangements on this are so unexpected. And you will get pieces that could sit alongside um, Nick Drake, but then you'll also get pieces that fly off into kind of wild jazz or psychedelic directions. And as you've pointed out, there is this kind of nursery Innocence, This particular kind of English nursery innocence, which is also in the work of um, Sid Barrett and some of the early Floyd. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure he ever made anything better, though he made a lot of very, very good albums after this. But, um, yeah, I don't
0: think so. I think I think this is my favorite Kevin Ayers. I mean, I love albums like Whatever She Brings, We Sing, and Shooting yeah. at the Moon too. But th- th- there's something about this album that's so perfect and so quintessentially 1969. Sure. And of course, it has a lot in common um, with what his former band Soft Machine were doing at the time, and his vocal approach is not dissimilar to the Robert Wyatt vocal approach, is it? Again, it's a slightly underachieving, uh, almost underachieving sort of vocal approach. I was going to say, I
1: think it's a perfect album year's album because, you know, what I love about kind of Ayers and Wyatt at this time is that they seem to love Terry Riley. They seem to love Motown. They seem to love the Beatles. There's just kind of a natural enthusiasm and effusiveness that also comes through the music, even though it does have a kind of a melancholy quality as well.
0: Well, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It it has a slight... I think it's that yearning for childhood thing again, isn't it? So, uh, you know, again, I've always felt this with the, you know, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, the songs like Scarecrow and the Gnome and Bike. They have this almost yearning to go back to the nursery, trying to recapture something about childhood. And Donovan has that completely uh, as well through most of his great music. And it's definitely very present here. Now, is that aspect also present in the work of Harry Nilsson? I'm just wondering, too, because there's almost something about a yearning for childhood in a lot of harry Nilsson's work and his album from this year harry is uh, i think one of my favorite favorite harry albums. i mean what a wonderful voice he had i mean he kind of ruined it didn't he as he went through the (laughs) 70s with uh drinking and and hanging out with john lennon too much and getting i've got the album
1: where his voice is going you know where shot yeah yeah. it's completely shot and it is so sad because he had arguably one of the greatest voices in pop and rock music. And um, I think what they always said at the time is that, you know, you love the Beatles, this guy is McCartney and Lennon rolled into one, but with a better voice than either, you know.
0: And I, and you know what, I don't think that's hyperbole. I really think at this moment in time, uh, I mean, some of the songs on this record, just, just the most beautiful songs, mm. um, I Guess the Lord Must Be in New York City was the song he, I think he wanted to be in Midnight Cowboy, but in the end, they wanted him to do uh, the Fred Neil song instead, which of course is wonderful. Everybody's talking. But I guess the Lord Must Be in New York City is, a, you know, equally impressive uh, mm. composition.
1: Well, I suppose with his voice, I mean, one of the things as well, it's not only this, he's got the sweetness of McCartney, the bite of Lennon but he's also got the range of singers like Freddie Mercury and Jeff Buckley to come he just seems effortlessly brilliant so let maybe let's um
0: I think talking about Nilsson and Kevin Ayers in a way sort of dovetails nicely into talking more broadly about about singer songwriters now singer songwriters in 1969 no exception in the sense they're also being massively influenced by what has been going on in the world of rock music and and psychedelic music and proto progressive music and there is definitely uh, i think a sense that things are are becoming more ambitious so some great albums from this year neil young released two his first two albums this year neil young and everybody knows this is nowhere um Unfortunately, we have this thing with Neil Young where we always mention Neil Young. We say the albums are great, but we don't really talk about them because I think he's one of those artists that they're all good albums, aren't they? I mean, um, it's almost like we we want to dwell on, you know, perhaps the artists yeah. that perhaps aren't discussed so much. So let's not talk, about, but they are amazing records. I
1: mean, the one thing, the first album's got a few pieces that he never really kind of revisits, this sort of orchestral singer-songwriter style that was quite popular in the late 60s. And I think Jack Nietzsche, however you pronounce it, did the arrangements and they're great. And of course, on Everybody Knows, this is where he introduces the real guitar freakouts that he becomes known for, the nine minute long. Yeah, this is the
0: birth of Crazy Horse. Yeah, even though it's not Crazy Horse at that time.
1: Yeah, But it's that sound, isn't it?
0: We've got Laura Nyro's New York Tenderberry. I know you're a big, big Laura Nyro fan. Wonderful I, I really like album. Uh, we've got Roy Harper making folk Joe Copas this year. Uh, Roy Harper's another big, big favourite of myself mm. and Tim. This, I, I think, it's fair to say, this is not one of his great. His great work is to come. I think is is what I yeah, would say. Yeah, never.
1: Uh, it's funny because I really like um, his debut. You know, the stuff from. 67 68 and I, and I think he even the demos he did in the mid 60s really like them but folk jacopas one of the for me my least favorite um Harper album, me
0: too but then but then just around the corner we have flat baroque and berserk we have stormcock we have life must we have a run of extraordinary albums. Uh, Elton John's album "Ditto," really "Empty Sky," probably the, the weakest of his first, you know, ten or twelve albums. But you know, the birth of an incredible artist uh, uh, there to be heard on that first record. Tim Buckley made two great records this year: "Happy," "Sad," and "Blue Afternoon." I can't remember if we talked about Tim Buckley before on the show. Have we?
1: We haven't. I mean, they're probably my two favourite Tim Buckley albums, really. And he's kind of doing what Joni Mitchell goes on to do in the late seventies, infusing. Sing a songwriter with jazz music, i suppose on on these two albums and um yeah they they possibly remain my two favorite um Tim Buckley albums, although I would argue that Star Sailor is his most extraordinary album.
0: But I agree with you, Happy Sad and Blue Afternoon are probably the most listenable that's a horrible word, but uh, (laughs) probably the most listenable albums in the sense that they have a wonderful kind of open quality to them, sort of the the freedom of jazz, but not the kind of histrionic aspects that he would go on to introduce on albums like Lorca, Star Sailor, Greetings from L.A., which are sometimes a little bit hard to listen to. Here he's he's still got that sweetness to the songwriting sensibility He's still got the sweetness in his voice, uh, and so just some wonderful songs like "Love from Room 109," "The Tight Track of Blue Afternoon," "I Must Have Been Blind." Uh, some some great songs on these records. I gonna say I guess they're as close as
1: he comes to no risk discs in some ways, aren't they?
0: Uh, we've got Phil Oaks Rehearsals for Retirement, a record I don't know, although he's an artist I'm kind of curious about. I need to investigate a bit more. Also from this year, we have Richie Haven, Stonehenge. Uh, we have uh, Joni's second album, Clouds. Love that record, but talked yeah. we talked about Joni. We talked about Joni on, on, we will talk about Joni more, I'm sure, on other episodes too. Um, Al Stewart's Love Chronicles. That's a wonderful record. Uh, I love you know, that. Epic, <laughs> epic title track, yeah. Is Is this in a way the birth of confessional songwriting perhaps Uh, maybe maybe i'm exaggerating the importance of of this record in that sense but it seems to me that love chronicles this is just a this just a a song a 15 minute long song about all his love affairs growing up um and into quite graphic detail as well um is is this the birth of what we might call confessional singer-songwriter i I
1: think you can see you know if you think of confessional singer-songwriters during this period i see two sides of it really. One is the Canadian, Leonard Cohen and Jenny Mitchell, who they've got Songs Laughin from the Room. Yeah. Laughing Laughin Len, Len, Songs from a Room this year, which has got some great stuff on it. Uh, Jenny Mitchell's Cloud, as you've pointed out, beautiful record. And then in Britain, in a very, very different way, I think Roy Harper and L Stewart are quite confessional. They're, you know, sometimes searingly honest um writers. And Love Chronicles is very different because the first Al Stewart album, which I actually, again, really like, is very baroque, very orchestrated. And a lot of people felt the arrangements got in the way of the music and his lovely voice. But Love Chronicles, it's just unadulterated Al, isn't it, really?
0: Yeah. And also this year, of course, we have uh, two two very big hitters making their first albums. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash. Uh, what, an incredib- yeah. what an incredible record. You know, uh, I think probably almost canon. It's almost like we don't need to talk too much about this record. But, I mean... Just so many great songs on that record, you know. Uh, but I think maybe we should talk about the other one, uh, which is Nick Drake, Five Leaves Left, because this artist has been so special to you and me, so key to, I guess, you know, we talk about having a musical musical DNA. I think Nick Drake is embedded deeply uh, in, in the DNA of both of us, to the point that we've covered several of his songs. I know you've, you've been very keen over the years to do a whole album of of nick drake actually i've
1: probably with with peter chilfers we've covered about 10 of his tracks that have never been released i
0: i I, you know i think nick drake has almost become a part of the furniture now but um in the sense it's very hard to find any musician that won't drop his name into the conversation as being an influence but lest we forget and i'm not trying to be holier than thou though when i discovered him uh in the mid 80s um I couldn't find anyone that had even heard of him. Um, I remember buying a box set called uh, called Fruit Tree from the local Our Price, and it was marked down to four ninety nine. And it had sat on the shelf in Our Price for about two years, and nobody had bought it. Uh, and I bought it one day, and I was just completely transported, mesmerised by 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 the quality of the songwriting, the quality of his voice, his voice, the quality of his guitar playing. I mean, his whole approach to guitar playing. Uh, as I think any sort of acoustic guitar specialist will tell you is is just very very elevated he's very 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 accomplished guitar player and the whole kind of combination of that with the whole story of his life the fact that he was ignored through most of his most of his lifetime he died in 1974 completely unknown by an apparent overdose of sleeping pills was it suicide was it not he was very unhappy for most of his adult life and that quality in much the same way i think when we talk about joy division It's very hard to divorce the Joy Division music from what you know about Ian Curtis. It's very hard to divorce the music of Nick Drake from what we know about him and his life, isn't it?
1: And it it stands apart in a way. I mean, on one level, it fits in with that whole kind of... um, Is it the Witch Season Island Records folk scene at the time with Fairport, John Martin and so on? On one level, it kind of fits in with that. But on another level... There's a real kind of grace and timelessness that puts him outside of almost anyone, even though in the songs you can kind of hear that he would have been familiar with Donovan for a start. Mm -hmm. You know, I I always kind of think that um, songs from a flower to a garden, there are aspects of the second album of that that will have influenced um, Drake. But he sort of takes it further. You know, his guitar playing is astonishingly accomplished while his voice is beautifully fragile. You've almost got this tension between a kind of hesitant vocal and a tremendously confident and accomplished guitar approach. Um, But just beautiful songs. You know, I think the standout on this album possibly is Riverman, which um, has been covered by a number of people and imitated by quite a number of people. It's a kind of a shuffling gorgeous folkish singer songwriter piece in 5/4 isn't it
0: but I think so many standouts on this album. I think I think that's the beauty of a great album is that, you know, you can just point, you can almost sort of throw a dart at a dartboard and you'll hit a great song. I mean, Three Hours, Time Has Told Me, Cello Song. I mean, there are so many great, Fruit Tree, there's so many great songs on this record. Um, but I think what's very interesting about Nick Drake also, and I'm looking through this list of all the other sing, singer-songwriters we've talked about, and there's one thing that he doesn't have, that all of the others have. Your Neil Young's, your Laura Nyro's, your Al Stewart's, your Joni Mitchell's. The one thing he hasn't got that they've all got is he hasn't got Got an ounce of cynicism. There's something about his music that is completely uncynical. It has the melancholy, but it's not cynical. It's not lashing out at the world in any way, is it?
1: Yeah, I suppose, yeah, I, I would kind of phrase it differently in the sense I guess that his music doesn't seem particularly worldly, mm. um, in the sense that with Mitchell, Young, Cohen, they all seem like they've lived very eventful lives. They all seem like They know everything. You know, Lou Reed as well. I think Velvet Underground's album this um, year, the self-titled album was superb. And all of them seem very knowledgeable, very worldly, very immersed in certain cultures. He seems kind of outside it all, Mm. if that makes any sense.
0: So so talking of cynicism, let's talk about uh, the the other end of the spectrum, the the development, I suppose, out of sort of the, the sort of Boom of blues music is kind of happening all around us in 1969. So we we mentioned the first two Zeppelin albums this year. There's also albums like "Kick Out the Jams" by MC5, uh, and and the kind of other the other album in that category would be the Stooges' first album. This kind of very aggressive garage rock music. We've got Cream making their last album "Goodbye" ten years after, made two albums this year. Sweetness Clearwater Revival made three albums this year, uh, you know, a, 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 alongside Fairport Convention. What an extraordinary, uh, you know, work rate. Uh, Status Quo, Spare Parts, Spirits Clear, Jeff Becks Bacola, Blind Faith's eponymous album, Alice Cooper, Pretty's For You, Deep Purple self-titled album and their concerto for Group & Orchestra, which is kind of an anomaly in a way. But I think the albums that would be interesting to talk about from this year, from the, from the blues scene, uh, well, there's a couple. Fleetwood Macs then play on. But also mm-hmm. th- the two albums that Free made this year. Now, you've already mentioned Free. Tons of Sobs and Free were the two albums they made in 1969. And they're, 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 I think what's remarkable about, uh, remarkable about these two albums is firstly, how accomplished they sound. And secondly, how young the band were when they made them. I mean, they're, they're, they're kids. I mean, they're barely out of, you know, I think they still are in their teens when they make Tons of Sobs. Isn't Simon Kirk about 16 on the day? Something crazy like that. And yet they sound so accomplished. That first album, I think, is one of the great sort of progressive blues albums of all time. Um, the second album, similarly so. I think Paul Kossoff at this at this stage, arguably, is ahead of Jimmy Page in what he's doing with his instrument in terms of tonally and the way he makes his instrument speak uh, in a kind of emotional way to the listener. It's, it's for extraordinary for someone that's, 19 or 20 years old something crazy like that yeah yeah
1: it? well i mean it's interesting is because obviously three were huge but when you're talking about 69 zeppelin did their first two albums and they are great albums you know in particularly for me the first one but free are as good. But free, but free were not successful
0: until until later on. These first two, these two albums were not successful. I think that's p- worth pointing out. Whereas the Zeppelin ones were ma- instantly, instantly massive yeah. records. Yeah.
1: And and that's kind of peculiar. They didn't really capture the public imagination, even though of course they had the huge hit with All Right Now, a couple of years later, and and, and greater success. They seemed to sort of fall apart, whereas Zeppelin seemed to become invincible as the years went on, free. There was something quite fragile about them. And on these early albums, you're right, it's kind of coming out of that British blues boom. It's anticipating the hard rock of the 70s. But it's also got little bits of that English folk influence that you can Mm. hear in traffic, Fairport convention, Mm. You know, you name it. That's also in the mix. Which
0: is also true, isn't it? A Fleetwood Max then play on. I think. I think there's there's as much yeah, of an influence yeah. from folk music and classical music and ch- chamber classical music. Uh, you know, on that album, which essentially again coming from a a blues quote unquote band. And Peter Green again, a, you know, a very troubled soul like like Paul Kossoff, very troubled uh, soul, and a lot of that sort of sadness and melancholy permeates the songs, don't it? Songs like Oh Well uh, and Man of the World are just kind of imbued with that kind of world-weary, just, you know, just that kind of of just-get-me-out-of-here quality.
1: Um, But also the Danny Kawan, I mean, you know, his stuff, although the sun is shining, um, when you say, I mean, he's a great uh, melodicist as well, you know, fantastic melodies. He almost kind of has a Sort of bluesy Baccarat quality for me, actually. Danny Kowan during this period.
0: But it's funny, isn't it? That sadness also seems to permeate his songs too. I mean, all also, also seems to have been it also seems to have been quite a troubled troubled. So, it's Fleetwood Mac band that seems to be cursed to have uh, you know these very troubled you know, musicians pass through their ranks, but it obviously has given the music something something really special uh, that we can all enjoy at the expense of these uh, <laughs> troubled, you know, <laughs> uh, really, you know, musicians with their demons, to say the least. But that that's another wonderful album, isn't it? They, they play it all, is, you know, and it
1: covers a lot of ground. You know, as you say, it covers that kind of slightly pastoral English folk element. It almost has aspects of M.O.R. Bacharach in some of Kiwan's melodies. It has really raw experimental blues, proto-hard rock. Lots of things are in there, and it seems very natural. You know, again, it's one of those albums where they're kind of putting it together for the joy of putting music together, and it's the blues coming apart in in delightful ways. Dave Gilmore's tone you can sort of hear in Peter Green at times, can't you? And... um, Another big band who were influenced by this, I think, you know, this, particularly maybe this album, The Template, Wishbone Ash, I think. Yes, came out of, yeah, very much so. Play it's
0: interesting, isn't it? Albatross is not on this album. It's it's, it's from the previous year. But that song, that, that two-and-a-half-minute instrumental, when you think of the influence it's had everything from the yes. Sun King on uh, you know on Abbey Road to North Star and Robert Fripp's exposure to a large part of David Gilmore's musical vocabulary comes apparently from that one <laughs> yes. to an half minute instrumental by Peter Green it's it's just an extraordinary legacy for that song to it to is appear. a beautiful song stunning yeah. yeah
1: well they try it don't they on this album then play on the very last track before the beginning which is mm. a Peter Green instrumental it's a bit like Albatross 2 it's almost yeah. like they're doing yeah. it you know?
0: it's interesting you use the yeah. word natural though Tim I think One thing I love about Fleetwood Mac is how natural the voices are which you can't say, you know, you listen to free. I mean, uh, you know, Paul Rogers has got an amazing voice, but it's not a natural voice, is it? Robert Plant, similarly, they're obviously very much quote-unquote professional singers. Whereas when you listen to people like Peter Green or Danny Kerwan sing, there's, again, there's that wonderful kind of outsider quality. These are just sort of regular guys that have stepped up to the microphone to sort of pour out their woes to you. And it just feels very natural and very uncontrived. And I think that's a quality that I really love about this album, Then Play On.
1: Absolutely, and also when they do go back to their roots, you know, when they've got that kind of 30s Robert Johnson blues sound, there's something surprisingly authentic about yeah. it. Um, and when you consider that these are middle class kids from London, relatively young, and yet they seem to, as you said, kind of display this pain and emotion.
0: Let's just have a quick run through what's going on in the world of, of say, the more mainstream, the more established artists this year. Obviously with the Beatles, Abbey Road, uh, you know, we, we, we can't fail to mention that. A great record. Uh, I don't think we need to talk about it anymore. The Who, Make Tommy, um, Great concept records, uh, The Kinks, Arthur, uh, Rolling Stone's Let It Bleed, The Doors, The Soft Parade, which I'm a, I'm a bit of an apologist for The Soft Parade. I think it always gets a bit of a, you know, a, a sort of worst of their, worst of their six uh, Jim Morrison albums, sort of. Yeah, it's not. The,
1: well, it's not. I mean, it's, I mean, personally, I think the best albums of the first three. I think the first three Door album, Doors albums are fantastic. But I think Soft Parade is where they really do try and venture out you know for, for me the title track is amazing but there's a couple of wonderful pop songs with um brass yeah
0: touch me is great i mean it's very it's a bit kitchen i suppose people that's not what they want from the doors they want the doors to be you know like the uh what what, what was his nickname the lizard whatever his nickname was Uh, The Lizard Lizard King King. They want the Lizard King They don't want the Tom Jones Sort of aspects of of Touch Me But I I think in retrospect It's still a very listenable record I I do like it Uh, We got the Carpenters first album Or Carpenters I think Is the correct way to refer to them First Carpenters album Ticket to Ride But I suppose a record That's worth dwelling on A little bit more Actually a couple The Beach Boys 2020 Which has one of my favourite Beach Boys songs of all time Although it's not really from 2020 Because it was supposed to be on Smile Which is Cabin Essence What a song What a song um, and this is this is my favourite version of, of Cabin Essence because it was overdubbed a little bit more for the release on this album. Beach Boys are going through a really interesting time, aren't they? Because they're struggling now. They're really struggling to maintain their profile, aren't they? Uh, having kind of imploded a little bit with, with the Smile project that kind of, you know, kind of fell apart and then the Wild Honey Back to the Roots album, which didn't really translate into record sales. And they're still making a lot of music, but it's not really selling that well. But there's some wonderful, you know, there's some wonderful gems on these records from this time, aren't they?
1: Absolutely. And Cabin Essence, as you say, is one of my favourite tracks of all time. Yeah, so, yeah. And um, and I think that, you know, for me, the Beach Boys remain interesting right up until the end of the 70s. There are always great, you know, Dennis Wilson tracks um, to be heard. Um, there's, there's always something happening in their music. And it's such a shame that this got neglected at the time. And Great albums like Holland got neglected as well, but I suppose Surf's Up is the one where it kind of comes together for the band artistically and also in terms of public awareness and and again great album i think
0: a good album but i still i I still prefer 2020 there's something still about it that's got that kind of um they're making it in their bedroom quality which i which i love on 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 wild honey uh and the previous album friends as well has got that uh the sound of that sort of very bedroomy or school classroom upright piano which is kind of the bedrock of a lot of the Beach Boys music around this time, I love that. But the other album that's worth talking about here, Tim, I think is is um, Bee Gees' Odessa. What a mad record! <laughs> a double concept record in a red in a oh, red yes. velvet box about about something I'm not quite sure. Um, but the the music, I mean, it's 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 all over the place, isn't it? It's I suppose it's got that kind of post Beatles psychedelic quality to it again, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, the the Bee Gees' um, late 60s work is indebted to the Beatles. And they, you know, perhaps aren't as great as the Beatles, but they write some amazing songs. And they, again, a bit like Harry Nilsson, managed to combine the bite of Lennon with the melodic and beautiful qualities of McCartney. And, you know, there are some wonderful short songs on this, but overall it's quite a balmy concept with some extreme arrangements and as was par for the course for the um, the the Gees around this time some um rather peculiar song titles as well i think yeah
0: so i mean they're, they're really this is this is their great art rock statement that unfortunately for them wasn't successful and i think it kind of sent them running in the opposite direction in a way they ran away in a sense from from ever being this ambitious again um and it's a shame in a way because I think I think they could have perhaps been if if this if these are the kind of albums that their reputation rested on, uh, I think they maybe could have been taken a lot more seriously than they are to this day. I think you know people kind of respect the Bee Gees, don't they? I think for a lot of people the Bee Gees will always be defined by that kind of 1977 disco Saturday Night Fever singing in falsetto thing, which I adore. But it's a shame, in a way, that albums like Odessa might be overlooked because of that. Um, Because this is is as ambitious as anything anyone is doing at this time, isn't it, really?
1: Yeah, agreed. And then they'll also have these little miniature songs, you know, I Laugh In Your Face, beautiful melody, you know. Um, They are really kind of gifted. And I guess you're right, it's that sort of, you know, like Berlin for Lou Reed. It's the album that maybe they put an awful lot into. And it was the wrong album for the time because it was Mm. kind of overblown. The packaging was overblown. Some of the arrangements are fairly extreme. And of course, you know, we know that in the 70s, bands like Electric Light Orchestra are going to have great success with similarly overblown combinations of pop and chamber Mm -hmm. classical. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know, maybe because as we were saying earlier in the program, that a lot of bands, whether it's Fairport Convention, whether it's Grateful Dead, are returning to the roots And the Bee Gees are going even further out there in this Baroque pop language.
0: I think also one of the problems they have is that everything feels with the Bee Gees at this time a little bit like a parody of something else uh, so you get the country song you get the soul song you get the sort of music hall comedy song everything, and you get the sort of Beatles pastiche so everything ends up feeling a little bit like an homage or a pastiche to something else and so it's difficult in a sense as perhaps it's difficult in that sense to take it as seriously as you might but nevertheless and it's an incredibly enjoyable record and, and you know it is very amb- ambitious uh, and very epic and unashamedly pretentious and i love that about it
1: yeah and, and i think the one thing again i like about the beach Bee Gees from this kind of period and they still had it you know really right up to their disco era there's a real sadness and yearning quality in even quite a lot of their mm. singles so let's you you may we
0: mentioned soul there in relation to to um, to the beegees album let's talk about what's going on in the world of soul and funk because Again, no exception, soul and funk music, black music is being very much influenced by uh, psychedelia and more progressive thinking in terms of what you can do with the art, with the, with the format of the album. So we have um, Roberta Flack's incredible debut album, First Take, with, uh, with the very famous song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. We have Sly and the Family Stone's classic psych funk record stand. We have Aretha Franklin's Soul 69. We have James Brown's Say It Loud, and Black and I'm Proud. But the album I want to talk about the most, uh, which, again, I think is a very important album for both of us, not least because we sampled uh, <laughs> uh, a, big, oh, yes. a big chunk of this record for one of our favourite No Man records. Isaac Hayes, Hot Buttered Soul, uh, what, the, the debut Isaac Hayes album. He, he really created his own sound right from the off, didn't he? I mean, what oh, yeah. would you say about this album, Tim?
1: Well, again, one of the things that you can say about this album is what you can say about the progressive and underground music of this time is that it's defining something. It's not necessarily being something. You know, we talk about progressive rock and even by the sort of early 70s, people are making progressive rock music. In this period, people are making up progressive rock music. It's music in the process of being defined and the Isaac Hayes album what would you call it psychedelic soul progressive soul um I don't very, know very difficult
0: yeah it, I mean it's I mean obviously you, you the first thing you do is when you look at the track listing you notice the durations of the songs I mean uh, an 18 minute long song two 12 minute long songs I mean obviously the whole notion of conventional pop song structure has gone out the window straight away uh, and it's interesting you see you see this trend uh, the next few years in funk and soul music, you see this trend a lot. I mean, you look, look at bands like The Temptations, uh, uh, frequently 11, 12 minute long songs would come start to pop up on their albums. Certainly Hot Buttered Soul is a statement of intent in that sense. And you have these long monologues, don't you? At least a long monologue at the beginning of, of uh, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, which would become one of his trademarks. Uh, wouldn't it? So it's kind of drawing you in, in a sense, over a period of minutes. I was about to say, yeah, it's
1: the birth of Barry White here as well, isn't it? Very much. Barry White has obviously heard Isaac Hayes and made, you know, commercial gold out of Isaac Hayes' experiments in a way. And, you know, the Barry White stuff is great as well. But... um, these tracks, yeah, they just breathe and it's there's a tremendous sense of groove throughout, beautiful arrangements and kinda of reminds me as well, I think, Serge Gansberg, you know, when you listen to things like Melody Nelson.
0: But it's also but it's also got that psychedelia aspect to it as well. Some of the guitar sounds, the kind of fuzz-tone guitars. Um so yeah, a wonderful record. Let let's um so I think the last category really that I want to talk about is what's going on in the world of jazz and jazz rock. Now, again like I said at the beginning of the show, it's almost impossible to talk about any of these genres without referring back to the influence that psychedelic and progressive music is having on, and rock music is having on every scene. And jazz is no exception. This is a kind of a watershed year, really, for for the fusion of jazz and rock music. Um, and what's interesting is you have different artists coming from both directions but arriving at the same point or similar points. So we talked about Soft Machine kind of going in a jazz rock direction. We also have Santana making their first album this year. We have Chicago making their first album this year, still called Chicago Transit Authority. And these are artists that have obviously come from the tradition of rock and R&B music, but they're making jazz rock. But at the same time, you have jazz musicians like Miles Davis starting to make jazz rock as well so coming from two opposite directions but arriving in a similar kind of uh, you know netherworld tony williams uh, emergency john mclaughlin's extrapolation these are
1: all i mean these are all masterpieces
0: of jazz aren't they really
1: it's an amazing year for that i mean the, the soft machine i kind of see a study outside of this because it's somewhere between that kind of very english psychedelic whimsy of kevin Ayers, sid barrett and jazz vocabulary but you know it certainly draws from Jazz music and also draws from Terry Riley, you know, that kind of loop uh, minimalism. But yeah, it's a really exciting year. I mean, one of my favorite Mars Davis albums in a silent way, which of course is typified by John McLaughlin's beautiful guitar tone and this almost meditative rock jazz. And you know, one of my favorite albums of all time, certainly one of my favorite Mars Davis albums. And as you say, uh, Tony Williams. Emergency, the Lifetime album is is really very, very good.
0: Also, John McLaughlin on guitar. And we have John McLaughlin's extrapolation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's inter- what's interesting is he's also got that kind of Peter Green aspect to his tone, hasn't he, again? And in fact, you can you can hear the influence McLaughlin had on Fripp, uh, no question. Um, in fact, Robert will admit it. In fact, he told me once that he had to stop listening to Mahavishan Orchestra because he felt they were having too much influence uh, on, on King Crimson. This is around the time of Lark's Tongues and Aspect because they toured together. But John McLaughlin, I mean, it's just, he, he's present on all three of these records, isn't he? Um, what, what, you know, what, a, what an extraordinary trio of records to, to make your name with in this
1: Absolutely. Show. And they're all very different, aren't they? Because Extrapolation yeah. uh, doesn't have a particularly distorted quality. As you say, it's almost got that kind of post Django Reinhardt picking that you're going to hear in Frip.
0: It's a very clean tone, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, and Lifetime is quite wild. And of course, in a silent way, as the title suggests, very meditative.
0: Well, also, the emergency, the Tony Williams lifetime album. It's it's very poorly recorded. It's, yes, it's 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 one of those albums that's so badly recorded that the recording has has kind of imposed its <laughs> its kind of personality on on you know on the music on the way you kind of perceive the music uh, in a similar way that say the second Velvet Underground album or Soft Machine third are essentially proto lo-fi. You know, not deliberately so, but they have a kind of lo-fi quality which kind of almost enhances uh, and creates a kind of patina across the music. Also this year, Pharaoh Sanders two albums, Jewels of Thor and Karma. Uh, Karma, of course, having the the uh, famous the creator has a master plan track mm. on it, which I which I a title which I parodied on a later Porcupine Tree album. Um, anyway, um, well, we kind of reached the end, Tim, except for a couple of outliers. One of which you've referred to several times in this episode which just shows you how important this record was uh which is terry riley a, a rainbow in curved air now we've talked a lot about minimalist music on on, on the podcast already in the past and it was, i guess we've shown we've shown people that how much minimalist music is important to us but i think we've also made fair points uh, uh when we've talked about it how influential it has been on the rock canon and the pop canon because it does pop up all over the place, doesn't it? And this album, I mean, not only was it influential in the sense it gave its name to a band who formed in this year called Curved Deer, it's the the kind of use of repetitive textures and the use of echoplex is clearly heard in the music of of artists like Soft Machine and Kevin Ayers, as you've pointed out. It's a very important record, isn't it, in that sense? It's a record that kind of bridged, that bridged the divide between serious composition and the world of popular music in a way that perhaps had never been done before this time.
1: I think you're right, but in some ways I think he peaked too early because I think at the time he had a massive impact on... Period pop, period rock, the album became quite iconic. But I think partly because it was packaged in a rock way and partly because of his image, which was quite hippie. In retrospect, he's not seen as important as those that came after him, you know, from Mm. Steve Reich to Philip Glass to John Adams to John Luther Mm. Adams. You know, there are a lot of minimalist composers who maybe have a more serious reputation because they're not necessarily tarnished. And of course, Terry Riley did an album with John Cale, again, linking it to mm. Velvets and other things. It's a lovely album. You know, you have the title track and then you have Poppy No Good, where he's using um, a delayed saxophone throughout it. And, you know, you can hear how somebody like Bozinski was probably very influenced by this as well, you know.
0: But also, I think that first side, you know, the the the, the title track, um, I mean, it's difficult to imagine tubular bells existing without, yeah, yeah. you know, a rainbow and curved air having been a precedent, isn't it? Um, so its influence, it, it, it's definitely influential, certainly for the next few years. This is an extremely... Uh, influential record and the whole notion of of you know uh, repetitive uh, using using echoplex to create repeating patterns and polyrhythms playing against yourself in that sense. So on side one he's playing the organ against himself and on side two he's playing the saxophone against himself. You know, but I suppose it's the idea that this is an album released on a on a rock label CBS, marketed as a rock album yeah. and using an electronic instrument the electronic organ really creates that kind of uh bridge between the two different worlds i still think it's an amazing record i don't think this record is dated in a moment
1: no i I love it i think it's unfairly overlooked really um and on that first side you can definitely hear aspects of philip glass's sound in particular with the use of the electric organ
0: yeah, I mean, I always think when I hear "In C," which is another of Terry Riley's important pieces from from this era, that you've got Steve Reich's career in a nutshell in <laughs> that piece. You know, uh, everything Steve Reich did, Terry Riley kind of did. You know, in N.C., C." Uh, I'm not saying Steve Rice didn't didn't do extraordinary things. He didn't, and, and arguably he did it much better, and he took it much further. But Terry Riley, as you say, kind of slightly overlooked figure in the history of minimalist music, in the sense that he 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 in a sense he really started a lot of these techniques uh, off. So a couple of outliers I think worth mentioning: Frank Sinatra's "A Man Alone." I love this record. Uh, one of, one of Frank's most melancholy albums. Um, yeah, great. Uh, album. the, yeah, songs of Rod McCue and great album. Uh, John Barry's great soundtrack to, to "Midnight Cowboy," of course including the the Harry Nilsson version of everybody's talking uh, but also the the main theme which people will instantly recognize. On A Majesty's
1: Secret Service is also good which does kind of involve psychedelic rock and synths and so on it's one of the first experimental Bond soundtracks in that respect.
0: Uh, Kyle Stockhausen's *Hymnen* came out this year. Again, uh, I'm a big Stockhausen fan. This is one of his electronic compositions, uh, created entirely from recycling the sound of national anthems from all over the world. There you go, folks. I get you all. I bet you're all rushing to listen to that now, aren't you? That's it, Tim. Well, we cr- again. I think we crammed in an extraordinary uh, number of albums into a very short period of time there. So traditionally, we always at this point in the show we we try to pick our favourite albums and also the ones that we feel were the most um, perhaps influential in the longer term, most forward-looking perhaps in that respect. Uh, What would you go for, Tim?
1: I mean, with Favourite, it is almost impossible. There are so many albums from this year. Five Leaves Left, A
0: Rainbow and Curved Air. Come on, I'm giving you some clues here. Oh,
1: Five Leaves Left. I I say it with a heavy heart, with a heavy heart.
0: It's a lazy choice. It's a lazy. Five Leaves Left. Listeners, listeners, that is a lazy choice. That's a lazy (laughs)
1: choice. I love it, though. No, it's I beautiful. do too. It's an understand.
0: It's an understandable
1: one. Um, okay, Nick Drake, five leaves left. I'm going to go for influential here. I've got three. I'm going to go for Terry Riley
0: because yeah, you can
1: hear minimalism agreed. and rock, all sorts of things there. Um, in the Court of the Crimson King, arguably sets the blueprint for what becomes progressive rock. Um, and then I think Abbey Road, because I think especially on the second side of Abbey Road and also their use of synthesizers on the album, you hear what is going to be mid-1970s British pop, Electric Light Orchestra, 10cc, Pilot. Um, it's kind of all there in Abbey Road. It's an incredibly forward-sounding album, I think.
0: OK. Uh, you know what? I, I don't think I can disagree with any of your choices there. Um so I'm going to be really lazy and just say I agree with Tim uh, on the on the most influential and forward-looking. I mean, yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense to me. Absolutely, makes perfect. And sense. I love
1: Hot Rats actually. Hot Rats is one of my favourite from that year.
0: I mean, you can argue that there are other albums that have had big influence. I mean, you know, the first Roberta Flack album, First Take. I mean, you can hear so much Not of right. what's going to what's going to come out of the mid '70s. You know, the sort of uh, the sort of soul singer songwriter tradition really. St- comes from that record Isaac Hayes yeah you know there's so many records that you can point to as as being influential you know the whole influence of country music coming through for the first time on you know an album like the band the self-titled band album so influential you know um on so much west coast music to come but anyway let's not get bogged down in that um yeah my favorite albums of the of the year yeah it's tough I mean Floyd's Amagama has been so important to me uh, over the years um it's in my dna as that band is in my dna it's in my dna in a silent way you know i never and i might never get tired of listening to again it feels slightly lazy to pick it you know but uh I, I agree with you nick drake's five leads left uh terry riley's a rainbow in curved air can never get tired of listening to that neil young's everybody knows this is nowhere um it's hard isn't it it's hard to pick hard, you know it's hard yeah. to get it down you know uh, Scott 3, Scott 4. Scott, yeah, Kevin Scott a-
1: 3. And yes, the Kevin Ayers yeah. Well, In the Court of the Crimson King is a great album that I still listen to, and I believe you've done some mixing of that recently.
0: I have, I honestly at this stage I'd be quite happy if I never hear it again as long as I live
1: uh, but but it
0: is a great album and there's mm. nothing that's no reflection of the album at all it's a great album I just don't want to hear it ever again okay great you know lest less we go on all night let, let's leave it there I think I think we've um, we've picked a few there that we, we kind of hold very dear to our to our hearts anyway and that's the important thing if you have enjoyed this episode or if you have any complaints or you've spotted any heinous <laughs> schoolboy errors of of which no doubt there were many as there will always be uh please do feel free to go online and give us a one star review or or five star review uh or whatever anything in between and 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 give us some feedback because we do we do we do read your letters that's all for now thank you very much for listening and goodbye goodbye